Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Adam Mendelson, the author of Jewish Soldiers in the Civil War, the Union Army. He's written two books, has edited several others, and is a professor of history and Jewish studies at the University of Cape Town. Thanks so much for being here all the way from South Africa. Thank you so much. Unbelievable. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. Serving in the Civil War was probably not easy, no matter which side you were on or uh, who you were or where you were, where you were from, or whether you were rich or poor. But if you were Jewish, it was even tougher, or it was at least different. You may have had to amend your diet, get special accommodations on Jewish holidays, and even face anti-Semitism on your own side. But as Dr. Mendelssohn writes, the Jewish contributions to the Civil War has been misunderstood. He says previous works have tried to show that they were just like any other soldier. I've certainly read dozens, if not over 100 books that are at least in some way related to the Civil War. And I don't know that I've ever seen a discussion about Jews who served. So, Dr. Mendelssohn, why must we understand the story of the Jewish soldier in order to fully understand the Civil War? It's a very good question, uh, and um, as you correctly pointed out, it's one which uh, has been misunderstood or, or, or has not received certainly the, the attention that it, that it deserves. The the army, the Union Army, was a an army uh, made up in in large parts uh, by 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 recent immigrants to the United States. At least twenty uh, percent, uh, perhaps as much as twenty five percent of the the Union Army were were recent immigrants. Um, we know a lot about. The experience of German immigrants. We know a lot about the experience of Irish immigrants in the, in the army, uh, who serve alongside those who are native-born, those who are born in the United States. And one of the 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 uh, the complexities of the war is for Lincoln certainly is having to keep this uh, um, immigrant population motivated uh, to keep this uh, the new American population engaged in the war effort. And uh, um, and this. We see this in a whole variety of different ways during the war, that, that there are um, a number of, of ethnic units. There are a number of officers uh, who are elevated to positions of high command, um, and um, amongst them are, are Jews. Um, and, but the Jewish experience is different, as this book points out, is different from these other immigrant groups in the United States, that yes, Jews share some of the experiences of other recent arrivals in America, but in many ways, their experiences is entirely different uh, in, in the army, uh, and they face very particular challenges. How was their experience misunderstood or misinterpreted in previous works? So, um, uh, in, in a variety of ways. One way was to to neglect it entirely. That that uh, Jews, as you've already yourself suggested, uh, do not feature, or their experiences have have not been uh, identified or understood as as being as being different. Uh, in in many works, uh, in in other cases, there are they only appear at very very particular moments in time. There are in fact two episodes where where Jews uh, receive uh, some attention. Uh, one is a notorious episode of anti-Semitism, which comes from uh, General Grant in in December of 1862, 
Um, and, and that episode has received some attention. The other, another episode uh, which has uh, received uh, some attention relates to the chaplaincy, that the initially the, the laws uh, which are passed uh, by Congress in, early on in the war restrict the chaplaincy to uh, to chaplains of a Christian denomination. And again, there's a, an effort by Jews to ensure that they can too can, can appoint chaplains. So, so, so these are the, really the only two episodes which receive attention. But the everyday experience of Jews uh, passes unnoticed. And, and that's where the, the book uh, really focuses. What does it mean on an everyday basis to be a Jew in, in, in this army? That What are the implications in a whole variety of ways uh, for, for Jews? And, and how does their experience differ from, from other ethnic and immigrant groups in the army? They differ significantly. And what was the misinterpretation? How were previous scholars just not quite getting it? Uh, so, uh, so, so in some cases, um, there was a, a um, as, as I've suggested, there was a, a, a neglecting this experience entirely, and others assuming that the that the the episodes which have received attention, so you know, General uh, Grant's General Orders Number Eleven or the chaplaincy issue, that this this was the sum totality of of, of Jewish experience. Mm. Um, uh, likewise, what, for example, and all this attention to General Grant's uh, uh, notorious act of anti-Semitism in 1862, what it doesn't do is really to speak to, you know, what its implications on an everyday basis for Jews, and, and was this representative of, of everyday experience for Jews as well? Was was anti-Semitism a dominant theme uh, for, mm. for Jews uh, during the war? Mm. Um, your book says the most often asked question is how many, even though the book also suggests that might be the wrong question or at least a misplaced question. But I will ask this misplaced question uh, to just ask how many Jews served in the Civil War out of the 200,000 Jews who lived in the United States in the 1860s? Again, it's a, it's a good question. We, we still have an imperfect answer to it. Uh, so, so there are, as you point out, we, we believe roughly 150,000, perhaps as many as 200,000 Jews in the United States in, in 1860. Of them, the vast majority live in the states which will comprise the Union, so um, probably at least 125,000 in, in the North and about 25,000 in, in, in the South. And um, uh, in terms of, of service, we know that a significant proportion, particularly in the Confederacy, do, do enlist, and that's a somewhat uh, different story. Uh, but, but in the Union, uh, again, our, our current estimate is is at least you know, several thousand. It, this book, in fact, is, uh, draws upon a an ongoing project to identify every single Jew who served in, in the Union Army. And at present, uh, we've identified with, with total certainty um, um, at, at least 1,700. Um, that, that number is, is uh, uh, somewhat, again, um, uh, to focus on that number alone is somewhat misleading because th these are cases where we, we can definitively prove that individuals have both served and that they're Jewish, and there, there are many, many more who, who we, we know who have have served, but we 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 don't have necessarily have definitive proof that they're Jewish or or vice versa. Mm. Um, so I want to ask, what was Jewish life in America up until then, up until the 1860s? Um, my family didn't really get here until they were chased from Russia in the very early 1900s. Um, often stories of the Jewish immigrant experience start then. And if you go to museums in New York, it seems to focus on that time period. Um, there's, there is the famous letter or several letters that George Washington wrote to the synagogue in Rhode Island. Um, but other than that, there's not much focus on the Jewish experience in America in popular history. Um, and I've read close to 450, maybe even 500 books. So 
Um, tell me, when did you start coming to America? Who were they? What were they after? Where did they live? What was it like to practice here? Uh, so there, there is a, a, a Jewish presence in America really from the, the colonial period uh, onwards, uh, but relatively small, a few thousand at the time of, of the revolution. And these are, are Jews who, who have come to America in search of opportunity, often uh, with links to, to the Caribbean, for example. They're, they're larger Jewish communities at the time of, of the revolution in, in places like Jamaica than they are in the, in the, in the uh, young republic in the early United States. Um, and they mostly the, the Jews who do make their way to America live in in coastal cities. So they live in 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 fact in significant numbers in, in Charleston. Uh, they live in Savannah. They live in Philadelphia. They live in New York. Um, but 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 small communities and and communities which are really interconnected, interbound with communities both in the Caribbean and in London and Amsterdam and and elsewhere. Um, this community remains relatively small. Um, it does grow in the 1820s, 1830s, so, so in the decades after uh, the, the, the revolution, uh, but grows very quickly in the 1840s and 1850s as part of this massive wave of immigration to the United States of, of, uh, of immigrants from, from Central Europe in particular. Uh, so uh, um, uh, as part of that broader wave of Central European immigration coming from the states and principalities and kingdoms, which will in future will comprise Germany. Um, and amongst them are, are tens of thousands of Jews. So a community which is relatively small in, in 1830 by 1850 is, is much, much larger. It grows mm. community which really grows exponentially uh, during this, this period. And, and then by uh, 1860, it's a community of, of um, as we suggested, roughly 150,000, perhaps as many as 200,000. Uh, what were the denominations of Judaism? Um, where did they practice? And what was practicing like in a country that to that point was, you know, certainly predominantly Christian? It's a good, good question. So um, most Jews who, who come to the United States are coming from fairly traditional uh, Jewish homes. But this is a period uh, where we begin to see both in the United States and in Central Europe, the, the emergence of, of new, more modern forms of, of Judaism, the, the birth really of Reform Judaism, uh, both in in parts of Germany and then in, in particularly in, in Charleston, um, South Carolina, in the 1820s, 1830s, and onwards. Um, so, so, but in reality, the experience for most of those who who arrive in America in the 1840s and 1850s is to move to to small towns uh, and and villages uh, in the uh, in many cases in in the Midwest um, and in in in, um, in and, and elsewhere. Uh, where there are very few other Jews. Uh, so we see the, the you know, one of the first things that these uh, recent arrivals try to do is to often try to create a, a cemetery um, and then to create a, a synagogue, create a, a temple. Mm. But by its nature, because there are in, in many of these places relatively few Jews, the, these synagogues are often a, a, a sort of a hybrid that, that they, they uh, demonstrate, they have sort of traditional characteristics that in some cases they have a more modern characteristics, but they have to cater to a, to a, a community, small community with, with a variety of, of different interests, different backgrounds, et cetera. Um, but this is this is really a period um, where, um, because of this very significant influx of Jews, uh, we, we don't see anything like we'll see later in the century, where, where there is a, a far more sophisticated and elaborate set of institutions and, and organizations which, which cross the, the, the country. This is really a case of American Judaism in a case in, in in production of you know, genesis, the genesis of, of new forms of, of Judaism in America during this period. 
Jews were holding to their traditions, even in this new modern world? In in some, it's a good question. Some cases, uh, yes. Uh, in other cases, individuals uh, seized the opportunities of, and in some cases, had to confront the challenges of being uh, newcomers in a new land. Uh, where in whereas in Europe they could draw upon family, they could draw upon existing institutions. It could draw upon, or sometimes were uh, coerced into into uh, maintaining a Jewish identity because of the a repressive state in which they live. In America, you know, freedom is a blessing and a challenge. Uh, you, you get to make of Judaism what you want in, in America. Um, and uh, it, it becomes a voluntary uh, identity as opposed to one which has been imposed upon you. And also, because Jews disperse in America, uh, they, they move west in significant numbers, they settle in, in small towns, etc. Because of that, it means that they have to make Judaism for themselves. Mm. Uh, again, they have to you know, create institutions, they have to decide to join, they have to decide to fill it. And that's something new and different for, for Jews as well. How did Jews serve the public before the Civil War? Um, what was their role in public life? Did they run for public office? Did they serve as, I don't know, tax collector or dog catcher, police officer, firefighter? What was the role in public life? Again, this is something which is new to Jews uh, in, in, some, in some ways, particularly for recent immigrants. They're coming from societies where there, there are restrictions and particularly uh, you know, public offices aren't open for Jews. And instead, in America, they find the opposite. We, we see, uh, again, from very early on, uh, the Jews embracing uh, all sorts of opportunities to, to you know, become uh, everything from uh, uh, the, the everyday roles, as you've described, so police officers and, and uh, um, uh, et cetera, uh, to, to uh, uh, aspiring for political office as well. And we see in particular places, uh, interestingly, in, in the South, uh, now Jews uh, rising in some cases already to to uh, in, into Congress and into the Senate uh, prior prior to the war as well. So so real sense of opportunity, which is as I said, something of a great novelty uh, to 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 Jews in the United States. Uh, you say that Jews enthusiastically started enlisting enlisting when the Civil War began. What examples do we have about why Jews signed up and what their motivations were? So uh, the, the Jews uh, sign up in significant numbers early on in the war, um, and that's it's a pattern which they share with many others in in, in April of 1861. Um, that there's there's a sense uh, that um, this is a war for those living in in the uh, particularly in the north that this is a war um, for the Union, a war for you know, preserving a country for which they have you know, taken tremendous risk in crossing the Atlantic and trying to establish a new life for themselves. So there's certainly a sort of tremendous patriotic fervor, which uh, which infects Jews and infects many others in particularly the early uh, months of the war. Um, that is certainly true of, of, of many, many uh, Jews. But there are other motives as well, which they share again with the broader population uh, as well, uh, that uh, we have interesting examples of uh, Jews, particularly those who are economically marginal, those who've been hawkers and peddlers before the war, a very common occupation for Jews, particularly in the countryside, who, who find that their their you know, um, uh, economic opportunity dries up. That's that's uh, there's no money in circulation. There's no that others have gone off to war. That no one wants to to buy the goods, for example, that they they are trying to 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 hawk to to those in the countryside. And uh, and again, uh, in some cases, that's a motivation that a sense of of the military provides a a, a sense of, of security of opportunity as well. What, um, what, what do we know about the way Jews 
at the time felt about the issue of race and slavery. Obviously, slavery is the driving force behind the Civil War. Um, and was that view subject to which side of the Mason-Dixon line you lived on? Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, Jews in the in the Confederacy, it's something which I'm writing on, working on, on at the moment. Jews in Confederacy seem to, to, in many ways, follow broader patterns within Southern society. In the Union, there's a, there's a more interesting story in a way uh, where um, uh, uh, certainly there are some who, who become abolitionists. So they're, they're particularly uh, those who, who immigrate to the United States after the, the failed revolutions, liberal revolutions in Europe of, of 1848. There's some ideological immigrants who, who arrive and they bring with them their liberal politics. They, they're 48ers and they, um, they become involved in abolitionism for, for that reason. But those are minority in in uh, in the north amongst uh, within the Jewish community. Instead, Jews have reason to be very weary of of abolitionism. Uh, yes, they share some of those reasons with other immigrant groups as well. The sense that you know, have taken risk in crossing the Atlantic and that that, that they these are in many cases economic uh, migrants. Um, that they want to make a, a new life for themselves, and that there's tremendous uncertainty in, in uh, um, the disruption of the United States. They, they regard abolitionists as zealots. Um, so certainly it's some of that. Um, certainly there is a, a Jewish angle to this as well in two ways. Uh, one way is that they have reason to fear, they've seen what's happened in Europe after the revolution of 1848, that, that, that um, revolution amongst its other uh, consequences uh, can cause outbursts of anti-Semitism and, and destabilize the position of, of Jews. And they, they fear that the same might happen in, in the United States. But they have another a reason to, to be weary of abolitionism as well. And, and that is that many leading abolitionists, particularly the 1840s and some in the 1850s as well, are uh, very committed evangelical Christians who are involved not just in abolitionism, but involved in a variety of other causes. And, and one of those causes often is the desire to convert Jews to Christianity. So a number of Christian missionary societies, which are led by leading abolitionists. And this is deeply disquieting for Jews, the sense that that, uh, an, uh, that abolitionism is uh, an abolitionist are, are part of a broader front, a part of a broader movement, which is uh, which is seeking to, to convert Jews. So, so again, that's one of the reasons why there's a, a real discomfort with abolitionism. One thing about the Civil War is that it introduced Americans to one another who would have had no other reason or occasion to ever meet one another. But you say many Jews went unnoticed. Um, I guess what was the reaction of other soldiers when they found out that there were Jews fighting alongside them? So this is where the experience of Jews differs from other immigrant groups. Uh, that unlike Irish and, and, and uh, Germans, for example, Scandinavians, the Jews typically do not serve in ethnic regiments. We don't see a, a, a Jewish regiment in the same way that there is a, an Irish brigade or, or many, there's a German corps, et cetera, et cetera, within, within the Union Army. So this means, and it's partly a function of the way in which the Jewish population is dispersed before the war, that Jews are living in small towns all over the place. And, and typically when you enlist for a regiment, you're enlisting in a local regiment, and, and because there are relatively few Jews in each place, it means that at most uh, regiments will have a handful of Jews uh, in it. A regiment of a thousand men might at most have, you know, the, the, the handful of examples of regiments with more than, than 30 uh, Jewish soldiers within it. And, and this means that 
some Jews certainly do from the start make their identities known. They do, you know, um, open about being Jews, but others are very careful to conceal their Jewish identity. They, they, we have many, many cases of Jews adopting aliases to try and conceal their, their identities, uh, or uh, they, they, they you know, keep it secret from, uh, from, from their fellow soldiers. And this can sometimes have tragic consequences. There's a very moving account by a soldier called August Bondi, who himself is an ideological, uh, ideologically committed to, to, to fighting for the Union, himself is an abolitionist. He signs up in a regiment in Kansas, and he, he has reason to, to suspect that two fellow soldiers in this regiment are, are Jewish, and he approaches them, and they deny being Jewish. They say, no, we are Hungarian, we, we aren't uh, Jewish. One of them will then die of wounds and in a hospital, and uh, August Bondi is then approached by another soldier who said, I have the soldier's um, personal effects, I have his papers, and there are these letters written in um in in yiddish uh in in amongst the personal effects which he can then read which are clearly demonstrate that the soldier is jewish the soldier who said to him that i'm i'm not jewish and this is an example of a desire to to conceal identity because of potentially the, the repercussions of that so we certainly have cases where a, a revelation of of being a jew leads to to hostility leads to uh, anti-Semitism, uh, leads to all sorts of of day-to-day uh, -to -day, uh, um, uh, inconveniences or torments for, for for soldiers, but but we have the opposite as well. We are likewise have Jewish soldiers where there's a, a sense of excitement of, of meeting a Jew as well. What were some of the things, or give us some examples of daily life and whether they were able to keep kosher, whether they were able to observe the Sabbath. Um, on Friday night and Saturday morning, uh, whether they were able to celebrate Passover and Hanukkah and all the rest of it. Uh, so um, the the army makes few allowances for uh, for religious practice more broadly. That's that yes, either there way. is yeah either way. Yeah. Uh, yes, there are there are chaplains, uh, um, or at least there's a provision for the appointment of chaplains. Yes, there is uh, there are again uh, there's provision made for Sabbath on on Sunday. Um, but but often observed in the breach rather than than uh, than than um, um, and easily observed by 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 soldiers. Um, but when it comes to Jews, there are really no accommodations. Um, uh, that uh, the the army uh, um, subsists on a diet which is very heavy on pork. Um, and again, soldiers, Jewish or not Jewish, complain about the unvarying nature of this diet that you have you know, bacon. Salt pork, salt pork, bacon, etc., <laughs> and and this is uh, um, and it makes it very difficult for a, a traditional a Jew to to uh, to serve and to maintain uh, kosher uh, dietary laws. Uh, but likewise, it's an army which which campaigns for the most part away from areas where there are significant Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. And um, Judaism, in particular, is a religion which um, uh, where belief certainly is important, worship is certainly important, but there are a whole variety of of day-to-day -day rituals, of, of weekly rituals, of, of, of festivals, which which rely on, which are centered on family, which are centered on community, and and being an isolated Jewish soldier in the army, uh, it's very very difficult to do this to find other people to to worship with, to to have a commanding officer who provides allowance for the time to worship on uh, uh, to to for, for Passover. A seder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, do we have records yeah. of those holidays being celebrated? Uh, a Passover seder, a Hanukkah menorah lighting under the moonlight somewhere. 
So we have some examples of exactly this. Uh, so we have uh, you know, soldiers, for example, uh, during the siege of Petersburg, so, so in late 1864 into early 1865, where we know they write to a rabbi asking to be sent all sorts of religious articles. They want prayer books, they want uh, uh, tefillin, etc., so that they can uh, worship together. And likewise, we have an extraordinary story from, um, from, from West Virginia early in the war, of, of, a, of a Jewish soldier who he, he describes to us how he and uh, other soldiers send off to Cincinnati. The, the sutler uh, who's attached to their regiment uh, returns to, to Cincinnati and brings back with him Passover matzah, unleavened bread, so that they can celebrate uh, uh, Passover together. And it describes the, their efforts to, to, um, to, to celebrate a Passover, to, to make this a special meal. They have none of the the traditional items required for Passover Seder that they, they, they uh, yes, they have unleavened bread, but they don't have um, the other ritual uh, items that um, the, um, the 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 spicy uh, um, the shank bone uh, vegetables, the, shank bone, the roses, yeah, exactly. It's so tough to find make, that stuff in Gettysburg, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, in the middle so of instead the they, instead they make do, and it's a wonderful account we have of of the the Seder Passover Seder going wonderfully wrong. The, is an injunction for Passover say to drink four cups of wine. They drink far more than four cups of wine. They get rip roaringly drunk and they imagine themselves to be Moses and Pharaoh. They they the spicy herb that they eat turns out to be far spicier than I imagine. So that again leads to them drinking more wine and and it's a, a really a, a very very lively account of a Passover seder you know on a lonely mountaintop in in yeah. um, uh, in West Virginia in, uh, in late eighteen sixty one. The Passover Seder can be quite grueling to begin with. I can't even imagine at the mountaintop in West Virginia during the Civil War. Um, you've already mentioned the, Ch the Chappelle, is that how you say it? Chappelle, Chappelle roster. Chappelle, um, yes. what, what were your sources for this? And now might be a good time to expand on the Chappelle roster, what it is and what the goal of it is. Absolutely. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary project which began in 2009. Uh, with what initially was thought to be a, a modest target, modest goal of updating a much older list of Jewish soldiers who fought in the war. There's a, a list which is which is published in 1895, listing uh, Jewish soldiers who fought in the Civil War. And, and Benjamin Chappelle, who is really the dynamo behind the Chappelle Rossi, decides that in 2009, what we need to do is update this list. And he recruited a, a research team to, to work on this. And they quickly established that the, the list was contained a number of people who, who who didn't satisfy the criteria which the the Chappelle roster team sought to apply that those who are listed need to be confirmed to be Jewish and uh, need to to have served in the war and they both uh, so, so excluded names from the list but also quickly established that there were many many hundreds of individuals who who had been missed in this earlier exercise and and this team is still working today um the uh, roster Chappelle roster, is now accessible online, uh, so you can search for um, uh, um, in a whole variety of ways using the, the, the search engine, um, and it'll bring up uh, those who who um, are um, uh, the, the seventeen hundred plus uh, you know, Jewish soldiers who are you know, those who are confirmed to be Jewish and confirmed to have served, um, and it's an ever growing list. So the, the project, the research, really really continues. And what's extraordinary about it is that it contains not just their service records, but all sorts of other documentation that the research team uh, found in the process of so pension records and marriage records and obituaries, etc. So certainly I drew on this for, for, for the book, uh, but also uh, more broadly, I, I um, read um, the 
the diaries and letters and memoirs of, of, of Jewish soldiers as well. And um, um, the, the book really contains, it's, it's focused on or draws upon a, a number of a very lively and very interesting stories of, of individuals about whom we know a tremendous amount because of the letters that they wrote home or because of the, the diaries and memoirs that they, they wrote to. And how big of the uh, of an archive is this? I mean, did you go through thousands of documents, tens of thousands of documents? So absolutely. So the Chappelle Rust itself, uh, the, the team has gone through hundreds of thousands. I mean, uh -huh. the scale here is is, is enormous, uh, and I really uh, have benefited from uh, from from their work. But certainly, uh, my own addition to it, the 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 newspapers and the memoirs and the diaries, etc., and letters that I've looked at, uh, again, are thousands upon thousands of, of documents, both of Jewish soldiers and and then of of other soldiers too, looking for discussion and mention of Jews. What are um, uh, and a Christian soldiers writing about, thinking about, about Jews. Do they notice? Do they care? Um, when do Jews come to their attention? When do they not? Why did this book need to be more than text? Um, it's interesting because most books these days are nine inches by six inches. Um, but this one is like uh, maybe almost a foot long, and it's certainly wider than most books. Um, and inside the book is not just your narrative, but there's also kind of these glossy photos and reproductions of letters and, and um, pictures of people. Um, and it's even printed in this glossy kind of format. So what, why did you make that choice for this? Why did you think that was important? There's certainly, I mean, I think it's, it's all in an effort to, to make the subject come alive and also alive, but also to make the experience of, of everyday Jewish soldiers come alive uh, too. Uh, so the documents which have been reprinted, which include you know, photographs and, and letters and newspaper cl clippings and, and pension records, et cetera, really get, give you a sense of, of, of what it means to be a Jew and, and, and what, their, what their everyday experience is. And it, it reflects, again, the, the wealth of material collected by the Chappelle roster, too. This is just a, a small selection from it. But if you go to the, the roster website, you can see these and many, many, many others. Uh, which have been collected over now more than a decade. Were Jews in the war um, rank and file, and you know, taking um, fire, you know, and and doing spears on 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 the other side, uh, or, or were they able to advance up and become higher ranking officials? And do we know who the highest ranking Jew was? Uh, so, so, and this is one of the areas where there is a, an interesting difference between. Jews in the Confederate Army and Jews in the in the Union Army. Uh, yes, there are uh, plenty of Jews who become officers within the the Union Army. Most Jews serve, as you said, in in the rank and file um, and are you know, actively involved in, in 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 combat. Actively involved with 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 their, their units. Um, so some some do rise to positions uh, you know, of command, particularly at the regimental level. So so there there are a number of Jewish. Colonels and lieutenant colonels, there are plenty of Jewish captains, etc. Um, we don't see in the Union Army a phenomenon we see in the Confederate Army, which is Jews rising into staff rank, the rising uh, to become uh, much more, much more senior in in rank. And uh, and I think there are a whole number of explanations for that we can potentially uh, talk about. Um, but um, but but and, and it does seem to be variation in terms of of where Jews uh, enlist to. So in other words, that despite the fact that there are many, many more Jews who enlist in New York than, than, for example, in New Mexico, we see a disproportionate numbers of Jewish officers in New Mexico relative to, uh, to New York. Uh, and um, uh, so, so there's, there's that interesting variation which might point to 
some anti-Semitism within, for example, uh, regiments uh, raised in, in New York uh, and relative to, to elsewhere. Um, but also this fascinating pattern, where, which I think it, it is held in common with, with other um, uh, ethnic and immigrant groups too, where some of those who enlist to begin the war as colonels, at, at sort of a senior officer rank, um, and have pre-war military experience either in Central Europe or in a, a pre-war militias in, in Pennsylvania or elsewhere, um, that they, they, they don't thrive within the military, that their pre-war military experience is actually poor preparation for, for being an officer in a very new type of war, which the Civil War is. And we see the opposite amongst a number of very talented, bright, capable um, uh, Jews who enlist uh, again, sometimes as privates, sometimes as, as sort of junior officers, and they rise to the ranks because they they demonstrate uh, capability under fire, capability in command. And, and the book, in fact, highlights a number of cases of, of this kind of, of individuals who, who who succeed in this way. So, do we know who the highest rank was? Who who achieved the highest level? Uh, so, so a good question. Um, uh, there are a number of Jews who become colonels uh, during mm. the war. Um, there are the, then there are uh, after the war or in the late, very late in the war, they they are breveted. They receive a sort of the uh, honorary promotions, and there are a number of of Jews who become, for example, brigadier generals. But in effect, it's a it's an honorary promotion as opposed to a a a rank that they hold uh, um, a permanent rank that they hold in, within the war. Uh, but there are a number of Jewish Jewish colonels uh, in in the in the in the Union Army. And and now we have one who's risen to become second gentleman of the United States. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, let me ask. Um, I, I have a few names written down. Um, you know, you're, I was curious who was to uh, as to who was on the cover. Um, who is Lieutenant Colonel Edward Solomon? Just give us a quick synopsis of who he is and why he made the cover. Absolutely. So he's an extraordinary uh, figure, um, and he's an individual who is who is breveted after the war. He, he he in fact is breveted several times, and in fact after the war is appointed uh, by uh, then later President Grant as the governor of the Washington Territory. So so his reward really comes after the war. He he's a, again a a young immigrant who, who makes his way to Chicago, um, and. Um, uh, enters into politics just before the war in in Chicago becomes an alderman in in Chicago. Um, he then uh, joins a regiment uh, in in Illinois uh, early on in the war. He has a a, a mixed experience within this, this regiment. He he um, um, and and then uh, leaves the army and reenlists in in eighteen sixty two and reenlists in a, in a regiment raised in in Chicago. Um, and it's a regiment which initially, it's the 82nd Illinois Volunteer Infantry, a regiment initially which has a very, very bad experience. It's, it's sort of, in effect, uh, is uh, badly, badly uh, mauled uh, in, um, at, at, in, at Chancellorsville and, and then again at, at Gettysburg um, and then is transferred from the Eastern Theatre to the Western Theatre. And it's here that Edward Solomon comes into his own uh, because there's this regiment which which has a very very tough really first six months uh, uh, under arms uh, will be very very involved in the Atlanta campaign so, uh, so under Sherman and and we see then Edward Solomon in effect who's commanding the regiment because the the, the colonel is is injured for long periods of time is is away uh, for long periods of time that in effect it's Edward Solomon in, in commanding this regiment and and if you read battlefield accounts then 
of you know, during the Atlanta campaign and later as well in the March to the Sea, the same regiment is involved there and then in the Carolinas too, that this regiment has an extraordinary ability at critical moments in, in decisive battles to appear and to play a decisive role uh, with, with Edward Solomon uh, leading the way. Um, and uh, it's one of the curiosities to me, you know, despite the fact that he is being mentioned in, in dispatches, being mentioned in correspondence after, after battles, and, and clearly is, is in a very distinguished and very, very capable, that he isn't advanced beyond the rank of lieutenant colonel. And again, I think that there's a story there, difficult to detect, but I suspect that, that his Jewishness might have counted against him. But mm. certainly he, he receives, he's rewarded after, after the war for, for, uh, for his service. Two more names here. One is Colonel Grun and his um, mm. efforts on Yom Kippur. Uh, I don't want to compare him to a baseball pitcher who became <laughs> famous in the 50s and 60s, but uh, tell us the story of Colonel Grun. So, so Colonel Grun probably doesn't exist. Uh, Colonel Grun is, is probably a, a figment of, of, of uh, a newspaper reporter's imagination um, that, that there's a, a newspaper uh, report, an account uh, actually just after the war, um, which appears in a newspaper in, I think is in Vienna, describing Colonel Grun as um, having um, um, uh, again acted heroically in battle having encountered a, a fellow soldier who asked him for, for water, it's the Day of Atonement, it's Yom Kippur, and, and he scolds the soldier saying, you know, how, how dare you, uh, you know, break your fast uh, by, by, by wanting to drink water during, during this battle. And uh, uh, Colonel Grun is then described as having you know, returned uh, to, to uh, again, wounded, returned to, uh, um, to the hospital in the rear and to have joined a collection of other soldiers in reciting the, the Shema, sort of a holy Jewish prayer, and this this prayer, in a way, then spreading through 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 the the, the broad army, and, and in effect, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the newspaper seems to suggest uh, perhaps aiding in the victory of of, of the Union army. Um, this is you know, Colonel Gruner and his exploits is is used by the by this newspaper and more broadly as a demonstration of of the wonders of America, of an ecumenical army where Jews mm. are serving alongside others and there is even though he doesn't exist there's a truth uh, to this that jews are uh, as this newspaper describes some jews serving alongside catholics and lutherans and, and, and all sorts of others and that to european newspaper readers there's tremendous novelty to this a sense that this really is how america is so so different from from their own experience but again and i think that even though he doesn't exist it really does speak to these broader uh, truths uh, about about why uh, this account why this war is so striking to to Jews abroad. Yeah, you can you, you can fight on the during the civil. Uh, I'm sorry, you can fight in the civil war on Yom Kippur. Just don't take a drink of water. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try and remember that. Um, there's one other story I want you to tell, which is the story of Lieutenant Isaac Cohn. Uh, you just mentioned the Shema, but he um, recited the Shema as a Confederate soldier who he figured out was Jewish died right in front of him uh, tell us that story again it's 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 a very a, emotional a, a, absolutely so so again um we, we have a number of accounts of this kind this is one of the the great fears of of, of a number of Jews who enlist in, in the war is that you know as more broadly this is a war which divides families a war which which divides the country in um in 1861 and, the, and thereafter that 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 this will pose a particular challenge um for Jews that they uh, too will have this uh, again a novelty for, for Jews a an ability to volunteer for an army to enlist in an army something which is 
which is a new experience for Jews in, in historical terms. And, and that what it might mean is that you might encounter your fellow Jews on the battlefield. Uh, that it might mean that you, your, your, uh, you know, your musket shot, your bullet might, might result in, in, in the, the death of a, of, a, of a Jewish soldier on, on, on the other side. And so we have accounts, uh, again, of the kind that you've described, Isaac Cohen, uh, where you know, Jews do uh, meet uh, um, uh, on the battlefield. Um, and sometimes sort of family members, uh, you know, some who fight for the South, some, of, uh, some who fight for the Union, some who fight for the Confederacy. Again, we have accounts of, of Jews who, who, who meet in, in this way um, or, or, or sort of strangers who in, encounter each other as well. Um, and, and we see you know, examples of, of a variety of different kinds, generally of, of a, a sense of, of solidarity and connection. Uh, that uh, particularly in, in extreme moments, uh, as with the Isaac Cohen uh, story, uh, where, um, where, where it, yes, there's a sense of, of, of fighting for different causes and being deeply committed to the cause that you fight, but also a real desire to maintain links and to, to, to ensure that these links survive the war too. And we see this again and again, particularly when, when uh, Jewish soldiers in the Union Army are stationed in or move through a town's uh, where in in the Confederacy in the South, where where they encounter fellow Jews, and there's a real sense of, of a desire to build or maintain a sense of solidarity to despite the war, to in fact, in a way, not talk about the war, but to talk about what what unites them. Um, uh, what did they? What did Jewish soldiers think of Lincoln, and what did Lincoln think of them? Um, very good question. So there's a wonderful book called Lincoln and the Jews, which which explores Lincoln's relationship with, with Jews in, in more detail than than I do. But certainly this book uh, deals with uh, you know, what what do uh, ordinary soldiers think about about Lincoln? And it's a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, again, uh, for a variety of reasons, Jewish soldiers tend to be uh, more closely aligned with the Democratic Party than with the Republican Party, the Republican Party Party of Lincoln. Um, and um, a number of them begin the war with a real commitment to the Union and the preservation of the Union, but again, a, a, a sense that this should not be a war to, to end slavery. But their thinking you know, changes over time. Likewise, they're thinking about Lincoln changes over time. We see a number of fascinating examples of Jewish soldiers who are, are you know, quite hostile to Lincoln, you know, share the views of a number of other you know, Democrats and others uh, you know, uh, before the war, during the war as well, uh, where they they, uh, they they see Lincoln as bumbling, they see Lincoln as a as a, a sort of a a, a backwater rube, etc. Um, but their thinking changes over time. Often, as they're thinking about slavery, changes too. Uh, that we, we see that uh, they they come to understand in a number of cases that uh, that you know, um, that. that this, the Confederacy needs to be punished. How do you punish the Confederacy? You do so by by ending slavery. That this is that you cannot end the war without without destroying slavery. And we see this change in tandem, as I've described, where where that often then uh, leads them to rethink Lincoln and to see him as a as a very skilled uh, in a wartime uh, president. And we see the same thing too, by the way, with the the attitude, for example, towards uh, General Grant, who they in many cases are very very disturbed by. His notorious general orders number eleven, but they come to appreciate him as a general uh, later mm -hmm. on, and that overrides their sense of unhappiness, uneasiness with him because of his anti-Semitic statements during the war. What was the reaction of his Lincoln's assassination? Again, shock, uh, and, and that's not just uh, amongst Jews within within the Union, but but more broadly in, in Jews in the Confederacy too, um, uh, and and and. Um, 
and, and again, this it, it reflects this this the way in which uh, Jews have become much you know, over the war. Even those who are Democrats have have come to to appreciate uh, Lincoln and, and and what he's done. Um, and so, so there's certainly what we see um, during uh, Lincoln's um, uh, burial and the, the the ceremonies around his burial that the Jews that we see rabbis across the United States are making sermons, preaching sermons, uh, which are are uh, adulatory towards uh, towards towards Lincoln. In fact, this is a large volume is published uh, soon thereafter, collecting uh, these sermons. And I think this this really reflects uh, the sense of of in a way sometimes newfound appreciation of Lincoln too that you don't really necessarily know what you've lost until you've lost it. Mm. Do we know how many Jews died in the Civil War? Uh, so we do know we have a a number for uh, the um, for the Union Army, um, and um, again you know some certainly we, we know of you know, a, a significant number who die um, of of wounds or die in in battle, um, but then many others who who after the war. Are left scarred by by their experience as well. So so so, and, and this is where it becomes much more complicated to to in a way decide on a, on a single number, uh, because uh, you know the, the war is as you know war typically is is traumatizing. There isn't a language to 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 describe it as there is today. There isn't a language of of uh, in a PTSD or, or otherwise. But again, I've I've read now uh, in a countless uh, pension records or appeals for 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 pensions. Which you know, by soldiers themselves or by family members, uh, records of um, uh, military hospitals or of uh, asylums after the war, where it's clear that that you know, a whole significant number are you know, ne- never recover from from the experience. Mm. This is sort of a deeply, deeply traumatizing experience, and 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 uh, they they do not recover. And the number is. <laughs> uh, so so the number when I last checked uh, is was twenty seven confirmed cases. Twenty seven. So, so, 27 during the war died in battle and uh-huh. it's not not those who die of disease or otherwise and again it's it's sort of a a distribution of the kind that you you'd imagine that that you know uh, and a Jews really dying in 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 the, the major uh, um battles of the war too often you say the memory of Jewish soldiers is as if they were ciphers or tin soldiers living on our terms not their terms how can we write that uh, so, so um, uh, I think by really understanding the the day to day experience of these soldiers, you know, um, and and whenever possible, also uh, hearing their voices, which which I've really tried hard to to do within this book as well, that whenever possible to 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 hear what they have to say, to to see how their their, their thinking uh, changes, to really get a sense of the the complexities for you know a for the most part an immigrant population and dealing with. And unprecedented challenges, uh, and having to to um, you know work it out what it means to be a Jew in this entirely unfamiliar new a new context, and uh, so so the book really tries to re- restore as much as possible the the, the voices of, of 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 these soldiers. How do you react to the anti-Semitism we see today in light of the sacrifices Jewish soldiers have made, not just in the Civil War but in every war America has fought? It's, it's again a very good question, and I and I saw all sorts of, unfortunately, all sorts of resonances uh, uh, during and after the war when it came to anti-Semitism, which uh, things which which unfortunately resonate uh, today, and unfortunately I think that uh, for uh, for some anti-Semites, maybe most anti serious anti-Semites, those who are committed to an anti-Semitic uh, in a perspective, 
that doesn't matter what what Jews do. That Jews exist in a, a realm of completely of fantasy. Uh, that it, it doesn't matter how many uh, Jews fight. That you always you know um, you know find ways to undermine their their, uh, their patriotism, undermine their their courage, or otherwise, or discard it. Uh, entirely, and we see that unfortunately after the Civil War too. That that I, one of the arguments I make in this book is that the Civil War really produces modern American anti-Semitism. The number of the themes that we see today, and the number of fantasies we see today about Jews, really emerged during the the Civil War period. That that Jews are unpatriotic. That Jews are in it entirely for themselves. Uh, that that they can never become true uh, citizens of of the United States, etc., etc., etc. That these are themes which really solidify uh, during the war. And we see after the war, uh, then a an outburst of, of anti-Semitism, particularly when it comes to the mass immigration of Jews in the 1880s and afterwards. So, so, so many of these ideas are revived uh, at that, that moment in time. And I see again, unfortunately, particularly on, on the far right, but, but elsewhere as well, uh, that, that you know, again, a number of these themes are, are, are present. Uh, again, that, that the sense of that the Jews are actively undermining uh, America. And again, uh, you couldn't find anything further from, from the truth. What is the best souvenir or keepsake you've seen that tells the story of the Jewish soldier during the Civil War? Oh, very, very good, 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 good question. Um, again, it's it's worth looking at the Chappelle Roster website. They have a, a large collection of photographs and 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 other other items which really point to um uh, again the sort of the, the, the texture. Of, of Jewish experience uh, during the war. The, the one which I particularly like myself uh, are the, the pistols which are, are uh, given to the man on the cover of the book, to Edward Solomon, after the war uh, um, uh, as a testament to his service during the war. They're, they're a very impressive pair of, 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 um, uh, of highly decorated uh, pistols. There's a photograph of them in, in the book uh, as well. And, and with this very telling inscription, which really speaks to his both his his abilities in command, uh, but also the the esteem in which he's held by those who serve under him, and I think it sort of speaks to that they 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 you know, recognize and uh, him as as an exceptional figure, even though uh, as I've suggested earlier, this this is someone who at least during the war I think his his true abilities aren't recognized. He be, he's sort of stuck at this rank of lieutenant colonel, whereas others are elevated much more quickly, despite the fact that he's he's very successful on the battlefield. How do we uh, what do we expect here in Volume Two? This was the Union Army. Uh, how does how is Volume Two going to be different? What is the uh, what is the story of the Confederate side? So I'm very much working on this on on this at the moment, and I, and I think that you know the, the we do see different motivations when it comes to 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 why Jews fight, how many Jews fight, as well. So that's that's one of the difference, and another one is something we've spoken about briefly before is that we see this interesting phenomenon in the conspiracy of of Jews rising to quite senior rank, both in the Confederate government, and the most famously, Judah P. Benjamin, who becomes a Secretary of War for a period. Uh, he's Attorney General, uh, and, and then also he's Secretary of State for, for uh, the longest period too, but others in, in Confederate government too, and in the, the officer course, we see that experience. We see a different experience when it comes to, to, to anti-Semitism as well in, in the Confederate Army. Uh, so, so all of those things are, are distinct. But, but one of the other things which, which uh, sets Jews apart in the Confederacy is obviously the cause for which uh, the Confederacy is committed. And, and I, I, I have all sorts of, I think, interesting things to say about the Jews and, and slave, slavery and you know, rates of Jewish slaveholding, and whether uh, slaveholding is a factor uh, amongst Jews who, who do enlist 
how significant is it in their thinking, uh, things of that kind. So again, a a, a very uh, sensitive topic, which I'll, I'll deal with uh, as well. The idea of Jewish slaveholders um, is just wild to me. And we had a discussion about this at a recent Passover, um, just trying to figure out, get our heads around that ideological leap that would have been required, uh, given what Jews have been through very famously during Passover. I mean, what did they say during Passover, right? Um, all right, a couple more here, and then I'll let you go. Uh, which other war would be most interesting to write about as far as the Jewish experience? Uh, so so um, we, we know something about uh, the Jews during the Second World War. There's a, there's a very good book, G.I. Jews, which, which deals with uh, Jewish soldiers during the Second World War. Uh, there, uh, But we know much less. So there is a, a book about, uh, a good book about, likewise, the First World War, but it doesn't necessarily focus as much on the everyday experiences of, of soldiers. And, and I think that, again, uh, the First World War presents very interesting challenges to, to Jews, because if you think about in, in the United States, because again, if you think about uh, their, their background, that these are individuals who who have, in many cases, left the Russian Empire uh, to come to America. In some cases, have fled the Russian Empire to 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 come to to embrace the freedoms of America. And yet, uh, the the um, United States is is uh, fighting against uh, uh, Germany and Austro-Hungary, uh, at least for a time, allied with uh, with with the Russian Empire. Uh, so so again, there's sort of this interesting complexity. That that uh, that that presents, um, and and we know again relatively little about this. What what does it mean to be a Jew in a a vast uh, army uh, which is which is thrown together relatively quickly? Is it different from from the Second World War? Is it different from from the Civil War? Again, something we would love to to know more about. Likewise, again, there we, we don't know much about, for example, uh, Jews in the Vietnam War. Uh, and again, it would be very you know, fascinating to to know. You know, is there something distinctive about Jewish experience? I thought it'd be super interesting to write about. The Muslim experience, um, an American soldier who is a Muslim serving in Iraq or Afghanistan. Absolutely, absolutely. So that that uh, you know, again, all the complexities that this is likely to present. Mm. Um, listeners will know that I've asked this questions uh, this question before, but I want to ask: What would a memorial to Jewish soldiers look like if you could design it? Oh, it's a really uh, wonderful question. So one of the things that my book argues is that. Uh, there's a memorial culture which develops immediately after the war. Uh, that there are um, uh, uh, graveyards uh, which are which are created, um, which we're familiar with today. That the the you know uh, great graveyards um, uh, marking Civil War sacrifice. Uh, but what's striking, and, and and then a variety of monuments which are created both in larger cities but small towns across the United States. One of the, the surprising things that my book found is that. Um, that Jews, at least initially, do not participate in this memorial culture. That we don't see Jews creating memorials and, and monuments. And it's one of the the, the uh, really uh, um, uh, it, it's a bit of a mystery around this, which I try and and, and understand. And I think it again speaks to the the difficult experience Jews have had uh, during the war. Um, in a way, and um, I, today, if we were to create a memorial for for Jewish service in the war, it would be of the kind that I think the Chappelle Foundation has created. That I think this mm. this. Me, this method and 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 um, intention of of identifying everyone who who serves and understanding their experience and, and humanizing them, trying to understand you know what are their lives like during the war, what are their lives like after the war, who are they, where do they come from? That this giving a name to other to individuals who otherwise are anonymous. I think this is a very modern form of memorialization, mm -hmm. and it certainly 
aids me as a scholar, but also gives life to to, to those who otherwise have forgotten. What's Jewish life like in Cape Town? <laughs> uh, so 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 lively. Um, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, there are many fewer Jews in South Africa than there, there once were, um, but uh, it's it's a community with uh, now about thirteen thousand Jews in, in in Cape Town. A small by uh, you know uh, New York, New Jersey standards, yeah. but uh, um, <laughs> but but with a whole variety of, of institutions of you know, communal organizations. Otherwise, a very very lively and a, a communal life. So so uh, and again, in an interesting South Africa is an interesting place. But one of its features is that we have many other problems, but one of the problems we don't have is anti-Semitism. That, that's, uh, it's sort of, again, a striking feature of South African life is that uh, is a relative absence of, of, of anti-Semitism. Lots of hostility towards Israel, but that's a different uh, different story. Uh, what's it like studying America from overseas? How does that change the view of a historian? It's a good good question. So, so I, I studied and then taught in the United States for quite, quite a long time. And returned then I'm originally from South Africa, returned to South Africa in, in 2015. And I think that I, I would argue that the positive it does provide some distance and, and 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 perspective and and comparison. That that what I try to do is to think about are those that I write about, are they you know, similar or different from, from other immigrants or ethnic soldiers in the Civil War? But but also do they differ from, for example, you know, Jews who fight in the South African War, in the Anglo-Boer War in, in, in South Africa? Uh, so, so it does, uh, and I think lend itself to 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 that sort of that sort of comparison. That's been one of the features uh, of of my approach and of my work is is trying to to use distance in, in beneficial ways. At the same time, I'm a great beneficiary too of the fact that the Chappelle roster and their material is all online, and yeah. likewise that there's a tremendous amount of digital material available. So I can read. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary thing, but I can read the letters written in 1861 from the comfort of my desk in Cape Town. Amazing. What a world. Uh, Dr. Adam Mendelssohn, the author of Jewish Soldiers in the Civil War, the Union Army. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. I shouldn't say here. I should say there. But thanks for joining us. Um, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.